Hey folks, this is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook. Before we jump into today's show with Eric Carlson, I just want to say how stoked I am about all the graduation announcements from SRNAs who've reached out over the last couple of years. I'm so pumped to see Jenny Lee from our episode on preventing spinal-induced hypotension with Ondantatron holding her national board results paper. What an incredible moment. What a huge relief to get boards behind you and finally call yourself a CRNA. Nice job, Jenny Lee. For those of you who are still wrapping up school this May or June, or if you're like the University of New England SRNAs here in Portland, Maine, this August, keep up the hard work, finish strong. Many of you just have that little celebration of knowledge that's called boards in front of you before you cross that threshold and make it to the other side. I'm rooting for you and just know that it will all be worth it. It's going to pay off. I want to give a shout out to Philip Witt, sorry if I crushed your name, who recently reviewed Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcasts saying, quote, Anesthesia Guidebook is, in my opinion, the best podcast for anesthesia learners, new and old. As an SRNA, I'm so appreciative for this resource and for John's style of hosting and educating. Highly recommend. Ah, Philip, thanks so much, man. Good luck in your anesthesia training, and I'll be sure to Venmo you the 20 bucks for that review soon. I also want to remind CRNAs that you can get Class B credit for listening to this or any anesthesia podcast by submitting your credits to the NBCRNA. I've gotten a couple of emails about that recently and want to remind you all that episode nine of Anesthesia Guidebook covers just that topic, how to get Class B credits in detail. And the website for that episode has links directly to the forms on NBCRNA's website that you need to fill out. It's super simple. All you do is report which episodes you've listened to, and boom, you've got Class B credit. Any anesthesia-related podcast counts for your Class B credit. There are lots of other ways to get Class B credit, and all of that is covered in Episode 9 of Anesthesia Guidebook. All right, so in this podcast, we're going to catch back up with Eric Carlson, CRNA. If you haven't listened to it, the episode right before this one, number 28, is where Eric unpacks a case from early in his career where he had a can't intubate, can't ventilate situation after a rapid sequence induction for a stat C-section at 2 a.m. when he was the only anesthesia provider in-house. It is a harrowing story of how he managed this incredibly difficult airway and situation. We recorded that interview over six years ago, and it originally was published on our show, From the Head of the Bed, a podcast for the anesthesia community. I wanted to catch back up with Eric following his retirement, and today you'll hear us reflect back on that podcast that he and Krista did several years ago. I was surprised what he had to say about it, actually. We start right off talking about that episode and Eric reflecting back on that show. We also take a look back on Eric's career, what influenced his decision to go into anesthesia, how to look for your first job in anesthesia, and what influences where you work throughout your career. Eric spent most of his career in a tertiary care facility with over 800 inpatient beds and 50 operating rooms. We touch on how challenging it can be to keep pace with a very demanding practice setting and walk through an article by Judy Thompson published in the AANA Journal in late 2020 titled, The Certified Registered Nurse Anesthetist as a Late Career Practitioner that looks at whether anesthesia providers should have mandatory retirement ages or cognitive testing as part of recredentialing. That article is posted in the show notes to this episode. 
We also talk about how Eric planned financially for retirement and his tips for practicing anesthesia providers on how to get there. You'll hear him discuss the last case he ever did and what it's been like to step over to the other side, beyond the OR and into retirement. Eric served as a preceptor for Kristen and me during our anesthesia training at Western Carolina University, which is the best anesthesia program in the nation, not biased or anything. We were always impressed with his depth of knowledge, his sense of being anchored and unflappable that comes from a place of deep competence, his willingness to teach and kindness as a preceptor. Eric is a remarkable human being, and I think you'll really enjoy hearing from him as we look back over his career and the advice that he would give to folks who are still in the thick of it. This podcast is absolutely relevant for SRNAs or anesthesia residents. It can be profoundly helpful to hear from someone who is way down the road when you're just getting started. It's like seeking out the village elder when you're preparing to begin your own journey and adventure. So listen to his stories, hear the wisdom in his voice, and I hope you enjoy the show. And with that, let's get to it. Well, Eric Carlson, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. I'm happy to be here. Um, To be honest with you, with the success of your podcasts in the past and having been uh, privileged to actually have one of the podcasts uh, with me as the interviewee, I'm honored that I can be here again and, and contribute. Oh, Eric, I'm stoked to have you back. So I, I do want to touch on that podcast that um, that we did a number of years ago. So, you know, back in 2015 or so, you and, and Kristen, who helped start the podcast, did an interview on a case that involved a failed airway that you were a part of earlier in your career. And so this podcast is about, you know, kind of looking back on your career and advice that you would give CRNAs and other anesthesia providers on a, on a long career in anesthesia. And I wonder, as you think back to that failed airway case, where that kind of fits in the scope of cases that you had in your career. I mean, is that, is that continue to stand out as a memorable case? Is that one of the, the worst cases you've had, or did that get just kind of put in row of a lot of other, not to, not to judge up like the terrible cases to start the interview with, but can you frame that for us in terms of how, how you think about that case now and how that shaped your career? The question is very interesting and it's one that I've considered many times. And I think that when Kristen first interviewed me, I had to think about it. I told her to give me a day or two, and then I told her I'd be willing to go ahead with it. But she framed that initial um, question about being interviewed. She framed it by saying, are there any cases that stand out more than others that you would uh recognized as probably being the most challenging or one of the most challenging situations. And the answer was immediate for me. I had no problem remembering that. Yeah. In retrospect, after the interview, Kristen did her editing and sent me the edited version of it and asked me for my approval, which I was happy to listen to and happy to eventually give her my A-OK. But what struck me so strongly at the time was how it impacted me at that time, whatever, 25, 30 years after the occurrence, how it all came back to me. And for the first time, John, 
I realized that I was a second victim. Oh, wow. I never even thought about it. Um, I mean, I thought about it in the immediate aftermath, of course. But as time went on and I sort of built back my comfort level and confidence in giving anesthesia, I sort of left it all behind me. But the interview process with Kristen and then more so listening to my own account accounting of the um, incident was one of the more powerful things I've ever listened to. Wow. So in retrospect, yes, it's probably one of the most, one of the most, if not the most impactful uh, anesthetics that I've ever been you know, involved with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's still, it's an incredibly powerful story. So I would, I would urge the listeners who may just be joining us for this interview. If you've not listened to that, go back and, and check that out. It's going to be posted on anesthesia guidebook right before this interview. So it's out there, but I, I still probably listen to that show at least on an annual basis. And, you know, it, it has affected the way I think about, uh, my approach to airway management, um, you know, pre-oxygenation and, and just kind of emergency management and, and thinking about, you know, if there's a chance to prevent something like that from happening, but also, you know, knowing that some cases are, have really bad outcomes and that may or may not be preventable and then how to, how to move forward from those, uh, cases in our career. So I definitely appreciate you sharing that story. Um, and, and yeah, that's very interesting to think about kind of retrospectively about the second victim phenomenon. Are you familiar with the second victim phenomenon? I am. Yeah, we've actually um, <laughs> had uh, uh, Cindy Farina on the podcast um, last year, and she was with the AANA Health and Wellness Committee and talked about the uh, mid to late career phase. Interesting. So it's very similar to this conversation with you in terms of kind of framing that end of career insights. And I, I think one of the things that she talked about, if I remember rightly, was the second victim phenomenon that as CRNAs go on in their careers, one of the things that can wear on people is this idea of really challenging cases and how, whether it's one particular case or just an accumulation of stress that can uh, negatively affect CRNAs and how they cope with uh, the stress of their careers. That's interesting. I've not heard that, but now that you mentioned it, uh, I'll just ask that you um, send me a, a link to that or oh, yeah, of course. how to locate it. I, I do truly feel that um, the average CRNA may not understand the impact or the potential impact of a catastrophic case. Yeah. I think... Most, if not every CRNA, realizes it could happen, but most feel that hopefully it would never happen to me. Right. And I think in looking back on that case, just the idea that you should be thinking about the potential problems that could be popping up or catastrophic situations that you may have to deal with. And I'm not a proponent of going into each case with sort of a fear that this could be the case by any means. Right. Because we both know that, you know, the vast majority of our cases are fairly uneventful. But at the same time, the idea of being prepared mentally to deal with the unexpected 
is maybe something that's hard to teach and hard to learn in a classroom that's based on, you know, your experiences. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I don't think it's something that we often talk about prospectively, you know, from a from a uh, anticipation or awareness piece. So hopefully podcasts like this will help frame that conversation for people or frame that idea for people as they approach their careers. I always tried to stress to my students that, you know, always have plan A and plan B and plan C somewhere in the back of your mind and to be anticipatory versus reactionary. And I think that that is helpful if you just keep that in mind with each case that you do, that don't respond to something that's happened, anticipate that which may happen or could be a problem. Right, right. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, what other advice would you give to either SRNAs who are currently going through training or other CRNAs in terms of approaching their career? I know it's like a, that's a huge that's a huge question. There, there could be so much, but <laughs> yeah, it it covers a, a huge amount of territory. I think one of the as an SRNA, I think you know your experience your clinical experience is what helps you formulate the type of practice you may want to enter. And I think that that's one of the nice things about the profession is that there are so many different types of practice environments and locations and levels of acuity that it's something you have to really look at. And as we've talked about before, you mentioned that one of the CRNAs that you uh, worked with when you were a student had asked you to consider getting, you know, three, four, five years of experience at a, you know, high level uh, trauma center or you know, high acuity type situation. And I think that's great. But eventually, I think you also have to consider the idea of working in maybe a, a lesser acuity situation because not everybody is cut out to be a trauma CRNA, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is one of the amazing things about careers in anesthesia is that they can kind of twist and wind through time and you've got options in your career. Uh, I wonder if you would take us back and kind of give us a snapshot of your career. Uh, where did you, how did, how did you know that you wanted to get into uh, working as a CRNA, and did you spend your whole career at Mission uh, in Asheville, or did you work elsewhere? Uh, interestingly enough, uh, when I was first out of nursing school, all I was interested in doing was becoming an emergency room nurse or an ED nurse, and uh, I was actually given the opportunity to apply to nurse anesthesia, a nurse anesthesia program, and there was an invite by the director of the program who happened to be an anesthesiologist. And he said that he would have loved to have me on board if I was interested. I, in turn, told him that at this point in my career, I just want to be an emergency room nurse, which I did go on to do and uh, spent, oh, I'd say six or seven years working in an emergency room setting the majority of which was at a teaching hospital at the University of Virginia. And we, needless to say, dealt with all levels of trauma and acuity and uh, ER-type uh, settings. 
while I was there, though, I gained a real appreciation for the anesthesia team. And when we needed anesthesia assistance in the emergency room, they would oftentimes send down a first-year anesthesia resident because they were probably the ones who were readily available at the time. Sometimes those first-year residents would struggle and ask for help, and a CRNA would show up to help them and sometimes guide them through their situation. And I was so impressed by that experience that it, it led me to investigate becoming a CRNA to see a CRNA actually teaching anesthesia to an anesthesia resident and was was something that just captured me. Yeah. And I felt that that level of responsibility and autonomy was something that I would enjoy. And so I ended up speaking with the director of the nurse, and nurse anesthetist at UVA, and she explained to me the process and you know the education and everything to become a CRNA. And is that where you went to anesthesia school, was UVA? No, actually, at the time, interestingly enough, I, I had reached a point where I was looking for a change in my career, and I had applied to a flight school to become a flight nurse where the uh, newly developed uh, anesthesia, no, emergency room ambulance service uh, out of UVA. And I was accepted into their first class. Um, so I was looking at that and at the same time I had applied to anesthesia school and fortunately got accepted into anesthesia school and had that decision to make and uh, choosing anesthesia was, needless to say, the best thing I could have done at the time. Right, right. And, and I look back, I look back on it as, you know, one of those turning points that, uh, thankfully, I made the right decision. Right. Uh, when did you get out of anesthesia school? What year? Graduated in 1985 from George Washington University in Washington D.C. and was actually active duty Air Force when I graduated. They had recruited me while I was in anesthesia school and uh, offered to give me financial assistance, which at the time was very appreciated. And I ended up accepting my commission into the Air Force um, and therefore was obligated to four years of active duty um, as payback um, for their assistance they gave me for anesthesia school. Yeah. And I went on to practice. My first assignment was Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi. And that was good because at the time it was the second largest Air Force hospital. It was a 500-bed hospital. And we did just about all sorts of procedures and surgeries. So it gave me a great experience. The flip side of that could have been going to a little two-operating room Air Force hospital in the middle of Montana. And I would have not had the experience that I ended up having. Right, right. And George Washington, was that a bachelor's or a master's degree at that point? That was a bachelor's program. Um, in fact, there were a lot of colleagues of mine who were graduates of even just the so-called diploma programs yeah. back then or certificate programs. So GW at the time was a bachelor's program, and they were trying to transition to the master's program. So our class was sort of based on a master's program protege or whatever you may say. 
um, they were sort of starting to work toward the MSN or the MS. Um, but in the long run, no, I, I ended up with just a BSN and with a major in anesthesia. Did you ever go back for a master's? No, I didn't, John. I thought about it many times, but I didn't feel that it would impact my career if I had it to do again. I would probably would go back for my master's because it would have qualified me to teach at, at different levels and it would have allowed me to work in almost any state with uh with you know without any restrictions of any sort. I think there at a time there were some states and there still may be higher to master's level for, for to be a CRNA. Yeah. I don't know if that's still true or not. Right. I think that we're at a similar crossroads now, nearly 30 years later, where obviously the transition of CRNA training from a master's program to a doctoral program is going to leave many CRNAs who are master's trained in the same position that you were in, in the mid-1980s, which, which is, I have what was my terminal degree in anesthesia mm-hmm. Uh, I am a CRNA. I have experience. I've got my career, my job, you know, are, are at play. And then they're facing this question on whether or not to go back and get a doctorate degree. Um, would your, would your advice change or would, would, would it be any different now for the CRNAs who are masters trained in looking at this new level of education for CRNAs, which is the DNP? That's an interesting question, which I had considered ever since they started talking about it you know, in the AANA years ago. And I feel that there are some people who would benefit by going back for the doctoral level degree. And those are the people who I think are more academically inclined and wish to teach or be more involved at that level. My own feeling is that for better or for worse, I'm not so sure that it would make any individual a better CRNA. Yeah. I think with master's level training and having experienced, you know, being a preceptor at the WCU program for, I guess, 10 years or so, I felt that we were turning out well-qualified, well-skilled CRNAs and I didn't see that there was a large benefit to moving on to the doctoral program at that point. Yeah. And I still feel that, you know, the master's level can turn out a great CRNA and it allows them to be good anesthetists. And I'm not sure a doctoral level program is going to change that. Right, right. I think it will be very interesting to see uh, how the doctoral level training for CRNAs does shift the conception of what a CRNA is and shifts the experience level of CRNAs. Uh, I know at the, at the initial idea of it, the initial experience of it, the last several years, uh, there has been some frustration amongst those involved with the AANA journal that has said that, you know, this has not resulted in any 
increased number or quality of scientific writing uh, or professional journal submissions uh, for publication. So I think it will be interesting. Not not that a DMP, you know, the program is not designed to create academic researchers. It's still designed to create practicing clinicians. So uh, just as, you know, most physician residency programs uh, may or may not turn out folks who are submitting uh publications, you know, submitting journal articles for publication. But I, th- I think it will be interesting to kind of see how this next uh, change in the education for CRNAs does shape the future of the profession. I think it'll be very interesting. And I, you know, I feel that there's degree creep in many professions. I mean, if you look across the board, um, almost any professional level, um, Training these days has seen a progression from bachelor's to master's and oftentimes doctoral type training and education. So I think that it's no surprise that um, as CRNAs, they were not obligated, but certainly being um, encouraged to continue to, to follow that sort of process. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that the idea that they may get more, you know, submit journal type submissions and articles for publication uh, would make sense to me because I would imagine that as at that level, it's a requirement that you um, propose and, and come through with a study or article or paper of some sort just to mm-hmm. obtain the, the degree. Right, right. Well, let's fast forward and, and think about uh, or talk about what what led you to decide to retire this last year. I mean, what what were the factors that shaped picking that date? That's a good question that many people will face, and I feel that we were anticipating retirement, my wife and I, right around the time when. You know, many people consider it, which would be a full retirement uh, Social Security benefit. Um, and for me, it was 66. And for younger people, the age is creeping a little bit further up the line. But I had pretty much anticipated that when I reached age 66, I would retire. The question for me was, would I retire completely or would I just step back and just work part-time, PRN, something along that line. And I don't think I had a hard and fast answer to that. I considered all options. And my initial impression was, in fact, my initial execution of my retirement was just that. I went from being a full-time employee with full-time benefits to working as a PRN with um, no benefits. And that was okay with me because at the time I was a Medicare age, you know, age 65. And so I was able to, you know, have insurance through Medicare. And that to me was a a key factor as well. The other key factor was our transition in our practice. Not only had we transitioned from being a private practice to being a hospital owned practice, but we had also recently transitioned from being a hospital-owned practice to being purchased by HCA, uh, 
as you may well be aware, a major um, medical provider, you know, nationwide. And that transition was rather uh, challenging for all of us. Um, we didn't really feel that that was a smooth transition. And so I think there are a lot of people who were considering changing their, you know, practice, their profession in terms of location, et cetera. Yeah. And I was certainly one of them. But being of the age where I was eligible to retire, I started looking at at that as a likely possibility. And combine that with my wife's desire to consider retiring, even though she was a few years younger. At the time, she was a CVOR nurse. And the transition for her to um, the new uh, HCA ownership was also challenging to put, to say the least. Yeah. And she started to consider the idea of retiring a little earlier than she had anticipated, um, primarily because she just didn't feel that they were being allowed to practice the patient care that she felt patients were deserving of. And I felt the same way, John. I felt that too many cases were being hurried along and production was seemed to be the primary driver versus patient satisfaction. Right. Well, I think along that line, along that line, I, I, I felt that one of the most important things that we as CRNAs can do is to spend a few minutes with our patient to help put them at ease and their family members at ease, you know, in that preoperative time, which may be five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever is required, in my opinion, to accomplish that sort of rapport with your patient. And I felt that there was too many times as time went on and production became more and more important that that was being put aside. It was much more important that you roll the stretcher over the threshold and be in the operating room at a given time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that uh, that story in particular of the healthcare shift in Western North Carolina from, as you said, specifically with the anesthesia group from private practice to hospital-based and then from nonprofit hospital to for-profit hospital and the sale of the hospital system to Healthcare Corporation of America, that was an exceptionally volatile time for a lot of the providers and the patients uh, you know, for all healthcare staff and patients in Western North Carolina, and has been well documented in you know popular news sources in uh, in and around that area of North Carolina. Uh, with notably the um, RNs of that healthcare system, the registered nurses voting to unionize and uh, successfully passing that unionization. Um, just a couple of years ago. So that must have been a, an exceptionally challenging time for your wife, who was a nurse, and for the rest of the staff there in the healthcare system. Yes, for us, the that whole process took place just after we had retired. Oh, okay. Uh, Peggy and I had decided to retire um, based on the transition to, as you said, a for-profit hospital system. And we had already set the wheels in motion we had put our house on the market and we were planning a move 
Um, and so we had actually accomplished our retirement. Inter- interestingly enough, we actually both retired on the same day. Oh, wow. I I actually tell her jokingly that I retired before she because I finished my my shift at five thirty and she didn't finish <laughs> until six thirty. Ah, uh, nice, nice way to way to beat her to the finish line there. And it's it's been a a transition that I was told would be difficult. Uh huh. Um, I don't know if you know Jeremy Stanley or not. Yes. Uh, Jeremy has been. Um, pretty influential in my whole retirement process, Uh, not just from a financial standpoint, because he's my financial advisor, but just as somebody who knows the CRNA practice well and knows the challenges that one can face going into retirement, because he's dealt with it on a personal level with so many CRNAs. And his advice to me, which I considered very important, was you're going to go through a big change and the first six months will be the most challenging. And I said, why? He said, well, think about it. You're going from having a regular paycheck being deposited into your account and you earn that paycheck and it's just part of life. And you're doing basically a 180 and now you're turning around taking money from those accounts or that account and spending it. And there's no replenishment, so to speak, of that account. And he said that mental adjustment is a significant consideration. And financially, to be honest with you, I'm very fortunate. Um, I was advised many years ago to invest heavily in my own retirement and for the most part was able to you know, max out my retirement contributions for the better part of my latter career. And that was able to allow me the opportunity to retire at, you know, a reasonable age. I know that a lot of CRNAs anticipate retiring even earlier than, you know, their Social Security retirement age. And each person has their own individual considerations. I feel that You know, Peggy and I made our decisions based on what we anticipated, but I know there are people out there who think they're going to work beyond, say, age 66, and there are a lot who think they're going to try to retire sooner than that. One of the influences that I looked at was I was talking to a nurse one day who I worked with regularly, and she was, I think, 60 or 61, very healthy, very you know, sharp personality. And she announced to me that she was retiring. And I said, why? Why are you retiring so early? And she said, because I'm healthy and I want to retire at a time when I can enjoy my traveling and doing different adventures while I'm still healthy enough. I don't want to wait until my health is declining and I can no longer do some of the things that I anticipate wanting to do in retirement. Yeah. And how old was she? She was 60 or 61 at the time. Yeah. And I feel the same way. Um, fortunately, I still have my health. And I feel that traveling is something that I've always wanted to do. And the idea of being able to have my health and enjoy that 
and the ability to travel is something that I didn't want to miss out on by waiting too long and waiting for my health to decline. Right. Right. Well, um, yeah, that's amazing. Uh, that's amazing, Eric. We, we, I am familiar with Jeremy. We had him on the podcast very early on when it was still from the head of the bed. And uh, then, you know, watching him transition to uh, creating Beyond the Mask, which has become an incredibly popular anesthesia podcast. Uh, it's been, you know, and the work that he and Sharon Pierce have done with that have just been uh, remarkable to see the stories that they've captured, the history of anesthesia, the work that they're doing. So it's been, it's been incredible to watch. And then of course, um, as, as you alluded to, he is a financial planner who is married to a CRNA. So not only has he coached probably more CRNAs in the nation than anyone else in terms of their financial planning, uh, he is also married to a CRNA. And so his financial firm is CRNA Financial Planning. Uh, I have never worked with him directly in terms of financial planning, but uh, certainly for the listeners, if you're looking for a group of people who, for some financial coaching, uh, Jeremy and his team at CRNA Financial Planning would be a great resource to reach out to. And, and he talks a lot about financial planning on his podcast with Beyond the Mask. So I would point listeners to that as well. Uh, it's an incredible resource. He's doing a lot of good work. That's true. And as I said, he, he, he assisted me in, in my decision process and, and Peggy's decision process as well, because, um, you know, he knew both of our um, situations in terms of planning for yeah. retirement. And he was a, a help in, in that sense. How, how and, long did you work with them? Or, when, or when, when did you really start to think in your career as a CRNA, hey, I need to talk to a financial planner. I need to start getting my affairs in order uh, for retirement. I'm smiling at that question because I can remember my first thought of getting a financial planner was when I was in the Air Force. And needless to say, that was quite a long time ago, probably yeah. back in the mid eighties. And I sat down with a financial planner and he started dictating to me how much I could spend on this and what I could do with that and what I had to do with this in terms of savings, et cetera. And it just seemed to be just too pushy for me. Yeah. And so I put that on the back burner and never really reconsidered it until <clears throat> I'd been in with Asheville anesthesia for a while. And the, uh, anesthesiologist who was the president of the Asheville anesthesia at the time had a discussion with me one day and explained to me the importance of investing into my retirement account. And I'm very grateful for that because, you know, he stressed to me that yes, you have a lot of expenses and you have a child, you have children, you're going to put through college, et cetera. But the idea of putting away as much as you can afford into a retirement is something you will never regret. And so I took um, his advice and I, you know, did a pretty good job of putting money away in my retirement account. And at the time, our retirement account was um, well-funded, so to speak, in the sense that um, our contribution from the corporation was at 15%, which is almost unheard of these days. Yeah, that is an incredible. I mean, so for your employer to, to kick in 15% is is incredible. Uh, that is rare to find these days. So uh, so, so you, you had this conversation with someone at Asheville Anesthesia, and when did you decide to reach out to uh, a specific financial planner for coaching? Um, 
during the time period when I was with Asheville Anesthesia, for the majority of the time period, um, their financial planning was um, by another company called Cap Trust, and they were very good. And they were actually available to us for financial planning, okay. not just the management of our funds. As time went on and my retirement you know, was becoming a closer uh, time period, I thought I would reach out to Jeremy and see about the idea of transferring my retirement funds from the corporation to Jeremy for management. And it probably took me a year or two to make that process happen. But again, based on the specialty that Jeremy offers, I felt that it was the right thing to do because he was the one who could not only manage my money, but he could give advices to how to wind down and, you know, look forward to retirement and when to retire. Yeah. Yeah. Were there specific things that, not to get into the specific advice that he gave you, but were, were there were there things or steps that you took that uh, that maybe were surprising to you or you didn't anticipate that you would give uh, as advice to other folks to think about? I think Jeremy um, was good in sort of illustrating different options. You know, he said that some people cut back to part-time, which is a great option. And some people go PRN, which is an option that I chose. And some people choose to travel so they can set their own sort of schedule and maybe combine some travel with um, for retirement of, of one at one level. So there are different ways to approach it. And I must say that I don't feel there's any correct answer. I think that each person has to look at their own circumstance and their own family and decide which approach for them is the best. When I first retired, I expected I would be working PRN for a longer period. But when my wife and I made the decision to completely retire, I thought that that would be the the end game in terms of my working career. And at this point, I'd say it probably is, although I would be amiss if I didn't say that there are times when I miss giving anesthesia. I enjoy being retired at the same time and not having to worry about the schedule and the the pressures of, you know, of having to work. Yeah. So it it sounds like you're leaving the door open, though. I mean, is this uh, is there going to be an Eric Carlson comeback story? I don't believe so. I would never say no. But at this point, we have too many other things in our lives that we're enjoying. Yeah. And the idea of having to commit to a schedule and, again, John, the responsibilities that you accept when you're an anesthesia provider. Um, I think one of the things that we as anesthesia providers have to realize, and we've just, you and I have mentioned this before, is the risk factors that you're facing and are you still as sharp as you were? Um, you know, is there a process or a time that you have to consider? Am I still a safe practitioner 
And am I at a point where maybe I should consider stepping back? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if there's a, a, a correct answer for that one either. Yeah, that is interesting. I, I want to uh, put an article in the show notes by Judy Thompson, who is a uh, CRNA. And this is an article that she published in August of 2020. So just this last year in the AANA journal. And she talks about the late career professionals and the idea of cognitive decline in professionals who work in high stakes careers. So she mentions airline pilots, for example, who have mandatory retirement ages of 65 years old and even younger retirement ages of 57 for professionals like uh, those who work in the FBI or other law enforcement officers, and then a retirement age of 56 for air traffic controllers. So, um, how do you think, I mean, did you see, did you notice um, changes in, in reaction time or cognitive processes later in your career? Could you see, or, or was that was that something that you were concerned about in, in the coming years in terms of uh, performing uh, at your highest as a CRNA? I, I did have the opportunity to read the article that you've mentioned, and I thought there were some very good points that she makes. In my assessment of the article, I'm not so sure that there, she had a firm recommendation one way or the other. But one of the things I think she did mention is, should there be some sort of cognitive testing at some level, at some time or age? Um, I don't know. The cognitive testing to me would be a very difficult um assessment. I'm not so sure that you can devise one, although I'm sure there are experts out there who probably could, that would actually be able to fairly ascertain whether or not you should still be practicing at the level you're practicing. The idea of having a set age, I personally don't feel that that's necessary. I think that each individual has to decide at what point they feel they should probably be stepping down. We've all worked with people who, you know, in a a high level jobs, like being, you know, doing anesthesia or surgery or whatever, where as they got older, you started to say, "Mm, are they missing a step or are they slowed down a little bit? That type of thing. And to be honest with you, John, it's the one thing that went through my mind on occasion was, you know, I don't want to be the person who other people are talking about. Maybe it's time for, you know, for Eric to throw in the towel type thing. And I felt that I was still sharp and still doing my job well and still very capable of delivering safe anesthesia. But at the same time, with the production emphasis that healthcare systems seem to be going to, I felt that being hurried on a daily basis was just no longer enjoyable to me. Mm -hmm. And had I made the decision years before that to maybe step to a lower level, less intense practice, maybe I would have worked longer. But at the level I was working still at the age of 66, I was doing mostly neuroanesthesia, be it spines or neurosurgery. Um, and I just found that that's a pretty high level to be functioning at when, you know, you're getting on in, in your years. 
and the pressure to continue not only to to do those cases and do them well, but do them rapidly. Mm-hmm. And turning over a major spine case in 15 minutes is sort of kind of putting a lot of pressure on everybody. Yeah. And I felt that that was a factor that I really no longer wanted to be part of that. Right. In fact, the last, the last case I did was interesting. It was a complex spine case. And I knew it was my last day, needless to say. So I was, you know, anticipating that whole process. And I was finishing my notes on the last case of the day. And the anesthesiologist who was working with me sat down and said, say, Eric, what's up? And he didn't know that I was retiring. And I just looked oh, wow. at him and I said, I just did my last case. And he said, what are you talking about? Your end of the day? I said, no. I just did what may be my last anesthetic ever. And he looked at me and said, really? Are you kidding? Are you retiring? I said, yeah, today, as a matter of fact. And he went, why? I said, because I want to go out at the top of my game. Yeah. And I I don't want to be one who hangs on for too long. And he said, good choice. That was it. Just good choice. (laughs) Yes. No, he, he really felt that I, yeah. you know, I think he understood my desire to go out at the top of the game versus, you know, starting to dwindle, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad that, that he was surprised. That that speaks that volumes of, well of the, yeah, the level of, uh, of care that you're providing. So that was still working at a high level, and I was doing a good job, and I felt that it was a good time to step down and not wait for some catastrophic event that would have forced my retirement or made me go through the same challenge and angst that I had gone through early in my career, I did not want to end on that type of a note. Yeah. Yeah. What was it like to walk out of the OR uh, that day? Mixed feelings all the way. Um, You know, the anticipation of not having to get up at five 30 in the morning and, you know, work at such a high level of responsibility was great. But at the same time, I'd always enjoyed that challenge. I'd always enjoyed the responsibility of taking someone's life in my hands and doing the job that I knew I was capable of and doing it well. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was, I I knew I was going to miss that responsibility and I have missed that responsibility. So, you know, you have to have a plan as to what else you're going to do. You don't just sort of retire one day with no idea what you're going to do because I think you'll flounder. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a plan. My wife and I were moving. We were sort of starting anew. And um, we loved Asheville. We still do. But we decided to move to the coast of North Carolina and uh, sort of start anew in a new location. And that's exactly what we did do. We, we purchased condominium because we wanted a, a lock it and leave it type situation. Yeah. Uh, at the time, it was before COVID, and we were planning on doing a fair amount of traveling. And we didn't want the you know, responsibilities of homeownership and maintenance to be part of our plan. So we decided a condominium and downsizing was the way to go. And that's exactly what we ended up doing. And it's been it's been great because even though... COVID sort of put a damper on the travel. It has now allowed us to do things such as I'm doing right now. 
you know, visiting my son in San Diego after a cross-country drive. And my condominium is secure and I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. And this is just not any cross-country drive. I mean, you've been you've been weeks on the road, right? Exploring the U.S.? Yes. We took the southern route out. We did uh, 3,700 miles coming out along the southern tier. And uh, we're going to spend a few weeks here. And then we're going to return to the coast of North Carolina on more of a probably central approach. You know, maybe Utah, Colorado that area yeah Yeah. and then meander on back to north carolina in a leisurely fashion oh that's great i would highly endorse that that road trip plan (laughs) yeah we we have really the trip out was wonderful we we experienced both urban and rural and you know landscapes interstate we avoided the interstate quite a bit but Inevitably, you're on an interstate at some time, yeah. but we really sought to do back roads, and I think we did a pretty good job, especially in the Southwest. Yeah, that's great. Well, looking back on your career, would you change anything about how you approached it? You know, I don't think I would. Um, with the exception of what I mentioned earlier, and that is maybe in the last three, four, five years of my career, I could have... Um, maybe step down to a um, less intense practice, maybe gone to a sort of a slower practice or a smaller setting where you didn't have the high acuity on a daily basis. And it was more of a, for lack of a better term, bread and butter type anesthesia. Um, I think that might have allowed me to sort of slide down into retirement or maybe I would have worked a little bit longer. I'm not sure. But other than that, uh, I think the idea of spending the vast majority of my career in one location was a good idea because we were fortunate that we, we loved Asheville and the vast majority of the time we, we loved, I loved my anesthesia practice there. So I think that long-term thing, we have all known fellow CRNAs, who have bounced from one job to another to another. And I think that person is oftentimes looking for the greener pasture and I'm not so sure they find it. Right. Right. Looking back, you know, on people who are maybe 10 to 15 years behind you, uh, would you give them any particular advice on finishing their career strong? Practice the way you want to practice in the practice that you're comfortable with. The fact that, you know, you are, Working in a res- such a high-level responsibility position, you have to be comfortable where you are. And I would not put any emphasis on what other people's expectations of your practice are. I think you need to find what, what works for you and make sure that, as I was told by several people, that you have a solid retirement plan financially. Because if you don't have the financial plan in place, then you're always going to be wondering whether you can retire comfortably and not have to have too much anxiety about the finances of retirement. Right, right. So having having a financial planner, advisor, to me is something I didn't realize 30 years ago, but it's probably the most important thing in terms of having the financial security to retire. Yeah. 
I wonder, thinking back on your career, were there were there mantras or kind of principles that you lived by, things that you kept in mind that served you well? Well, I think pride in my profession was a very important thing. I felt that we as CRNAs not only had a fabulous job, but we had an immense amount of responsibility. And for those of us who sought that, it certainly provided that feeling of responsibility and doing something that challenges you on a daily basis. And so I feel that that was just the attitude of this is a job or a profession that continues to challenge you on a regular basis. That was my primary thought and the fact that I enjoyed my job. I actually liked working. And there aren't too many people who can say that, especially after 30 years in the same profession. Mm-hmm. I actually enjoyed going to work. I enjoyed the work that I did and the responsibilities that I had to undertake. And that unto itself is sort of what kept me, you know, happy in my profession. Um, as far as little tidbits, I always tried to tell my students that, you know, you've only got five or 10 minutes to make a good impression when you first meet that patient in pre-op and you really need to focus on making them feel comfortable. Um, once they're asleep, they're obviously not going to be influenced by, you know, your mental attitude, so to speak. But those first five or 10 minutes of introduction and getting to know and say hi to your patient are very important times. And, and with their family as well, because their family is, is looking at you because they know that you are taking their loved one into a situation that's a very risky in many sense. Well, Eric, uh, it's been incredibly fun and enjoyable to chat with you. Uh, I, I've always enjoyed your advice. I've always enjoyed your stories. Uh, enjoyed working with you when I was a student down in Western North Carolina. And I'm so glad that you've been able to step into retirement well with a solid plan under your feet and that you're doing really fun things like living on the coast with your wife and getting to travel the United States to see your family. So, uh, I, I wish you the best in moving forward and, uh, would just like to give you the opportunity to sound off on anything that we've talked about or, uh, advice for CRNAs who are still in it or, or even those CRNAs who may be listening, who have already retired. Um, anything else you want to say before we go? Well, I'm glad you brought that up or you mentioned that because I had failed to mention one thing that I think has been fulfilling for me, and that is volunteer activity. Um, I knew that when I retired, I needed some sort of a hobby or focus that would still you know, give me some self-satisfaction and fulfillment. And so I was looking for a retirement volunteer activity and fortunately for me being where i live now on the coast of south carolina near wilmington um i i discovered just accidentally that you can volunteer to be um, a docent or ambassador or tour guide on the battleship north carolina oh wow and i am in the process of becoming certified 
to become a tour guide, but that's a fairly long process. There is a lot to know about World War II, and there's a lot to know about a massive battleship before you're actually qualified to, to be a tour guide. And COVID has sort of slowed that process down, but it's starting to open up again. And so I'm continuing my training to become a tour guide aboard the battleship, which is something that I've enjoyed immensely. Wow. Because I enjoy history, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, that is super interesting. Uh, well, you'll have to let me know when you become a newly minted tour guide for the Battleship North Carolina. And next time we're in North Carolina, we'll swing by and have you give us a tour. That'd be complimentary for sure. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be happy to do so. Oh, uh, that would be amazing. So uh, if there's ever a, a um, you know, at some point, I know the NCANA, the North Carolina Association of Nurse Anesthetists, used to uh, at times hold their um, state convention or meeting in Wilmington. And they did so as recently as two years ago, I'm, I'm pretty sure. So there's always that opportunity to, um, you know, sort of kill two birds with one stone. You can visit an area and attend a conference at the same time. And Wilmington's a great little city. Yeah, it's a beautiful town, and uh, Kristen's family actually retired to uh, Leland, so they live just just outside of Wilmington. So we'll definitely be in the area, and we'll look you up when we come down. Please do. Th- that is as long as you're uh, not out on some wild road trip in the West. <laughs> right. Well, we are just down the road from Leland, and the little town of Southport is a charming little historic seaport. That's awesome. Well, Eric, I look forward to seeing you then. And uh, best of luck to you and your family on the road trip and and what the future holds for you. Thank you so much for coming back on the podcast to share your story. I appreciate the opportunity. Hey, y'all, John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcasts? Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a link to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.